0: Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark message podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. This morning is going to be just a focus on Advents, and then obviously next week. Christmas Eve, Christmas, focus on Jesus, and then we're going to start 1 John, the 1st of January, and so you kind of know where we're going, but this morning, just being our last day of Advent, just wanted to put a little bit more focus on this season, and maybe take a different approach. You see the TV out, somebody called it, they said, oh, I bet Nick had the TV out today. So if you're new, or you've never seen that, it because it's been a hot minute, usually that means we're going to geek out. And so I got a little bit of a geek out for you as we focus on Advent. But if you had, we're going to be we're going to be in a few different scriptures, and so uh, give me some grace in that. But God's word is God's word, and it is good. But we're going to start in John 5. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John 5. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And so this is Jesus talking about what witness to him like it, it, when you think of a high ruling court in this ancient jewish culture you had to have witnesses you could just roll in and say whatever you wanted and hey he did this and he's guilty you had to have witnesses and you had to have at least two witnesses and no offense ladies they had to be male witnesses female testimony did not hold the same weight as a male's testimony right But I think that's really cool, because when you look at the resurrection, who was the first people at the empty tomb? The women. Now, if you were making that up, why would you take somebody in that culture whose testimony would be less than? Unless you were just telling the truth, right? And so... They had to have multiple witnesses. And here's Jesus talking about himself, and he's using multiple lines of witness. And so in John 5, at the kind of more the end of that chapter, he says, you know, in verse 33, that John the Baptist was a witness to him. And then he goes on to talk about the works that the Father has given him is a witness. And then even the Father himself is a witness. But I'm going to start to focus here in verse 39. Jesus is talking and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so he uses this fourth line as a witness to who he is. It's in the scriptures. Now we see that and what we have to understand is the New Testament has not been written yet. It's still being lived out. So what's Jesus referencing? The Old Testament. And one commentator said, and I love this because Jesus is talking about these Jewish elite, you know, religious elite. And he says the Jewish scribes, they sought to know the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. See, they knew the letter of the law and they tried to follow it and they even kind of added to it. Where they thought maybe God didn't fully give uh, an understanding to it. And so, here, let us help you out, God. We can help you. And we fill in some of this law here that you missed out on. So they added to it. And so they were very focused on the letter of the law, but they kind of missed the law giver. And when we try to follow the law without a relationship to the authority, that leads to legalism, right? Same thing as us in parenting. If I want my kids to follow the letter of the law of my house, but I do not have a relationship with them, yeah, that's not going to go well. But the obedience, even the laws that are given in our house that are unbreakable, absolutely, or capital punishment is coming upon you. Those without a relationship, that's a burden. But God always wanted a relationship with his people, they just kind of missed it because they focused too much on the law. Almost Jesus is kind of saying, if you if you knew the scriptures, but you didn't see me in them, you really didn't know the scriptures. But you missed the whole point of that. And so you kind of ask that question. It's like, if they knew the word, the scriptures, this Old Testament, so well, how did they miss it then? Well, Jesus gives us a little bit of a hint. Look at verse 42.
1: He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you.
0: So there is a connection here to understanding the scriptures and having God's love within us. Even Paul would say it a different way. So uh, we're going to be flipping a lot. Go to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is discussing a very similar concept and starting in verse 14, he says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that's the Old Testament, when they read that Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And don't we have testimony of that in our very own lives? That the moment that we came to faith in Christ, That maybe we have actually read the word before, but then when we come to the faith in Jesus and he lifts this veil, all of a sudden the gospel just comes to life to us. That the word of God just animates and just, like, before it was like, oh, it's very, like, stale and archaic, but then once we taste and see the goodness of the Lord, all of a sudden his word comes to life in us. It's the very thing that he's talking about, something that we as followers of Jesus have experienced. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That we have freedom in the Word of God. And we all, with unveiled face, talking about us as believers, beholding the glory of the Lord that we see in Scriptures, not because of the letter of the law, but because of the lawgiver. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that is the importance of the word of God is it's transforming us. Now we focus on the word, not for the letter of the word, but for the person of Jesus. And and we want to approach him with this unveiled face. And so we get to now look back at the Old Testament as a treasure of Christ in the Old Testament. See, we're not under the regulations of the Old Testament anymore, thank the Lord, because I love bacon and I love shrimp and other little things that crawl at the very bottom of the ocean. One comedian even said like, I don't think the Lord really wanted to eat us to eat those things because he put them at the very bottom of the ocean. Right? Like, You're going out of your way to get this. And it's like, well, have you had bacon wrapped shrimp? <laughs> you obviously have never been to a really good seafood restaurant, right? <laughs> And so we're not under the regulation of the law anymore. We look at the Old Testament law. We look at all of the Old Testament as revelation. That there is not just a foundational, but even more than that, level of understanding of who God is from the Old Testament. That even to really understand the New Testament, we need to have a good understanding of the Old Testament. Or it's, in little ways, it's not going to make sense when we hear John the Baptist point to Jesus and say, oh, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If we don't understand the Old Testament, why would John say lamb? Like, wow, that's my Savior, a lamb? Like, I like the lion versus, like, those sound really good. But the lamb of God? I mean, imagine if that was your football team. Oh, there's our quarterback. Oh, yeah, what's his nickname? The lamb. Or if that's your mascot? Wow. We got to take on the lambs today. We're going to shear them. Like... (laughs) But there's an Old Testament reference to that. There's an understanding from the Old Testament scriptures that now when they point to Jesus, so when people understand the Old Testament and you see that, it's like, oh, there's significance to it. It reveals the identity of God. It reveals the identity of Jesus. And so if you're a note taker in your Bible, I'm just going to encourage you to write. And it's okay to write in your Bible word. That doesn't mean we're adding to it. We're just taking notes. It's all good. I would go to the very beginning, and not even Genesis, the table of contents. And when you see the Old Testament, I encourage you just to write right next to it. That is the preparation for Christ. That's what the Old Testament was all about. A lot of times we think, oh, yeah, it's all about God working through Israel. Yes. Secondary, the primary purpose of the Old Testament was to prepare for the coming of Christ. And we'll see a verse here in a bit that talks about that. But this morning, as we're wanna, we don't want to miss Jesus in the Old Testament. So this morning, we're going to take a walk on the road to Emmaus. Do you know the reference? So go to Luke for me, if you would. I think Luke 24. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. We're in this forty-day window before he ascends to heaven. And he's appearing at different times and in different ways to even different disciples. And what I love is on the road to Emmaus were two of his disciples that were walking, and he appears with them, and they don't know it's him yet. And they have a conversation, he kind of even asks them, like, Why are you so down? And I'm like do you not understand, like, what just happened in Jerusalem? And the great thing is this is not even one of, well, they're only down to 11 now because of Judas. This isn't even one of those 11. These are other disciples that were not picked to be the 12 apostles. And so he's talking with them. And if you look at Luke 24, I like verse 27.
1: So Jesus speaks to him. He says, oh, you foolish
0: ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So here's a reference to the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27, and beginning with Moses, right? So that's the the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. So he said, beginning from the very Starting with the very beginning of Moses, the beginning of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, if Jesus went to this Old Testament that we hold, and he's interpreting the things that apply to himself, and was teaching those to those two disciples, we have the same opportunity. We we have that same treasure that we can go back to the Old Testament. And interpret and understand and learn the scriptures that are concerning Jesus. And kick over to verse 44, same Luke 24:44. And Jesus says, and this is after he's appearing to his disciples now, the 12 or the 11. And these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and see he uses a three-part breakdown of the old testament because in jesus's day that culture that's how they viewed the old testament they didn't call it the old testament it was just the scriptures but this is this is the same breakdown he said so every part of the old testament is written about me and so it is a actually a lot of fun to go back and see some of these because you'll see uh types and shadows so give you an example uh the ark of noah is a type of christ you have to be in the ark to be saved you have to be in christ to be saved even the door on the ark you have to walk through that door and what does jesus say about himself i am the door you know so there's a lot of types uh, even in uh, things, the Ark of the Covenant, different things like that that points to Jesus. All of the articles in the old, uh, the temple, let you know, it be tabernacle or temple, all those articles in there, the showbread, the lamp, the light, all that points to Jesus. There were people, those were types, right? So you think of Joseph, not his dad, Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, he got thrown into the pit from his brothers and then he gets sold into Potiphar's house and he goes to prison and then he becomes the prime minister That is a type of Christ. And so we even see these uh, people that lived in the Old Testament and their lives and the things that they went through were almost a foreshadowing of Jesus to come. And how God was working through their lives, there would be uh, some like minor things that were going on, but a fuller understanding would come later. So that's why there's sometimes there's a near and far prophecy. Even we read about it up here with uh, Isaiah saying, hey, there's going to be a virgin that's going to conceive. There's a near fulfillment of that. Then there's a far fulfillment being Jesus. And so we are going to take a walk on the road to Emmaus. We're going to look at some Old Testament scriptures as they point to Jesus, specifically prophecies that Jesus fulfilled of the Old Testament. And I know we hear that word prophecy, and it's kind of been painted in a bad light in our today's culture. Because a lot of times there's a, a, an individual that fills a role similar to being a pastor, and they want to shout out some prophecies of a word that the Lord has given them about future events. And the hard part with that is then a lot of times they never come to pass. Well, if we know from Deuteronomy 18 that a true prophet of God, you can't be wrong. All the prophets of God, when they spoke for God, yeah, they're batting a 1,000 on that. Why? Not because of who they are, but because of the message and who God is. And it's his message. And so God's not batting 99. He's not, you know, hey, a majority. When God said, hey, thus says the Lord, yeah, that's going to come to fulfillment. And there's some things that have, and there's some prophecies that were given in the Old Testament that we're still kind of waiting on
1: which is really kind of exciting.
0: But I want to look at prophecies concerning Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, God, when he was speaking and through prophets, and as they either spoke it or wrote it or through Moses, there are some of these prophecies because he wanted to give us an understanding of, hey, when Jesus comes, this is how you could identify him. And this is some things that uh, any other normal human would have no control over whatsoever. And so this morning we're only going to look at prophecies of his birth, but there's prophecies from his birth, from his lineage, from his ministry, even titles that he would be used of himself and that others would use, even how he would teach being parables. There's prophecies about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so you could honestly just take the Old Testament and have a very good understanding of what the Messiah would go through. And the beautiful part is, is as we know and understand the New Testament, it would be just like a puzzle piece that would fit perfectly. That this is the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. And that's the same, that, that's the Greek word for Messiah in Hebrew, right? And so we could look at the Old Testament and understand this is what Christ should go through. Then we read the New Testament and it's like, and the only one that could do that is Jesus. Because sometimes in this Advent season, we will say it vaguely. Oh, like we know the Old Testament predicted Christ and here he is. But I don't think we understand the fullness of that at times. That how precise Jesus had to be. See, there's a couple of mathematicians who had nothing better to do in their time than to figure out the statistical probability of one man. And we're only going to talk about eight prophecies in this mathematical formulation. They figured out what would be the probability of one man fulfilling just eight prophecies very similar to Jesus, right? And so we're going to use some big numbers that are way above me. So did Jesus really fill the role in the predictions of the Messiah from the Old Testament? Well, there's actually more than 300, but we're only going to do the math on eight, okay? Jesus over 300... Here's the math on just eight of them, okay? So the chance of one man fulfilling eight prophecies is one, you know, like there's a one in a million chance, a one in a billion, a one in a quintillion chance just for eight prophecies. That's a one with 17 zeros after it. That's a lot of money (laughs) if it was in dollar forms that it would be one and a quintrillion. That's number like we don't even use that number around. Like how much money you got back? A eh, quintrillion? Like I had to Google it. Like after you get so many commas with a, you know, you gotta do the three zeros and you put a comma three zero comma three. I'm like, okay, what do you call that again? And I had to Google it just to make sure I'm understanding. Right? Let's put it in a different way, another little word picture so you could probably understand. This is this is how these guys describe it. They said imagine if you had a quintillion silver dollars, that'd be a good life. That'd be a good life. You would have so many that you would fill the whole state of Texas two feet deep. Into Texas lately, my brother lives in Texas. He drives home. He'll drive for eight hours, and he's still in Texas. I was like, are you serious? Yeah. Texas is kind of big. And imagine all of Texas, two feet deep. Of silver dollars okay we're going to take one and mark it with a sharpie with an x and we're going to chuck it to the middle of texas
1: and then we're going to stir
0: them all up and then we're going to take one man blindfold him and let him walk through two feet of silver dollars all through texas and he could walk until his little heart's content but at some point he has to reach down and pick up one silver dollar What do you think the chances are he's gonna pick up the marked one? One and a quintillionth chance that he'll grab that. That's the probability of fulfilling eight prophecies. Jesus, over 300. Do we understand the weight of what this means? This is why the Old Testament is so important for us to understand these prophecies. That God wasn't vague and say, oh yeah, I'll send a dude, he'll have a beard, good luck.
1: How am I supposed to know who that is? That's why the New Testament is so
0: important. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Or is he just a dude, had a beard, yeah, he died, said something about sins of the world. It kind of matched the Old Testament. So yeah, let's go with him. Understand what's in the balance here. Your eternity, my eternity, is Jesus truly the Messiah? And this is one of the lines of testimony that I use to defend the reliability of the New Testament is because Jesus fulfilled this expected testimony that they set a stage in a very specific, very precise stage that only the Messiah could fulfill. Well, what kind of probability? Well, just eight of them puts us in a quintillionth. I don't know how they figure that up, but I'm not that smart. And so we're looking at the prophecies of Jesus just concerning his birth, because this fulfilled prophecy, it stands as evidence that Jesus really is the Messiah. And just one kind of key thought before we jump into the geek out. Of these messianic predictions of the Christ, that Jesus has already fulfilled. They were fulfilled literally. Not figurative, not allegorical, literally. So everyone that we're going to look at, literally fulfilled. All the other ones that he already has fulfilled, very literal, right? We still have prophecy talking about his second return. So the thought is, if Jesus is going to fulfill all these prophecies literally on his first advent, the very thing that we're celebrating this morning, why would we think that the prophecies giving about his second return would be anything but literal? Because a lot of times where there is a mistake or an error in thinking of the return of Christ, that other, we're going to use the term very gracefully, denominations use about the return of Christ, because there's, there's some denominations that they already believe that Jesus is back. And we can say, okay, point to him. Oh, no, no, he returned spiritually. Well, if he rose from the grave, literally in bodily form, I think he's going to return literally in bodily form. Because it would have been easy for the disciples when he rose from the grave. Oh, no, he rose spiritually. That's why his body is still there. But that tomb is empty. Why? Because that body was rose from the grave which is a first fruits to us that we are going to be raised from the grave literally, physically and then glorified and so the literal aspect of fulfilling of this prophecy, it gives us a key understanding that even the ones of his second advent, which we can't celebrate the first advent without any thought of the second advent it wasn't, oh yeah Jesus came, oh he's coming again he came as the lamb his second advent there's the lion. That's the lion that we want. That's when sin and everything is going to be shut up that we read in Daniel, that there's going to be an end of transgression, that that's when he's going to set up new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. But looking at the first advent, looking at some of these prophecies, I hope you can see the TV. If you can't just follow along, I'll read out loud. With us, and so just a few of these things. um, Some, just again, want to always be specific about them because I think we should be, because it shows the need that we have to understand fully. This is what our faith is in—that Jesus really is this Messiah that God promised from the Old Testament. And and again, all of these prophecies, at the very least, were written 400 years before Jesus. There was a 400-year gap. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of these prophecies written thousands, 1,500 to a couple thousand years before Jesus, which is hard for us to understand. Like, our country is just over like 200 years old. Like, we're pretty young. We're talking thousands of years of waiting and expectation. And with a people that knew the Old Testament well, they should have always have been looking at the word and uh, looking at the world, waiting for their Messiah. So one of the first things that we know is he was born of a woman. Like, wow, we all were born of a woman. Like, good prophecy there, right? But Genesis 3.15, if you remember in the garden when Adam and Eve are getting kicked out, this is God speaking to Eve, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He actually speaking to Satan, sorry, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I wonder if Adam was standing off to the side, what do you mean her offspring? Like, is she getting another man? Like, is this not going to be my offspring? Like, what are you talking about here? Well, when we look at Matthew 1.20, do not fear, this is God, an angel speaking to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Again, Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so there's a couple of reasons why this is really, really important. So sin came into the world through whom? Adam. Adam brought sin into the world and then death to the rest of the world. There is an understanding theologically that our sin nature is passed through the male. And obviously we know for all of us to be here, it took two to tango. I'm not drawing any more pictures. If you don't understand, ask your parents, okay? But sin is the sin nature is passed through man. And that is why it is only through her offspring. So there's even a hinting here of something that is only going to happen through the female. Why? Because he needs to be a spotless, unblemished lamb. And so this is why she is conceived from the Holy Spirit. And we even, I think there's another verse that I'll use here, that Joseph and and Mary never consummated their marriage until after Jesus was born. So there's not even a hinting of, "Eh, maybe they just got the dates wrong, maybe they had too much of a party that night, and one thing led to another. No, very specific. And then you can even look at... uh, because I, I put it on here, see verse 16. So if you go to Matthew 1. So uh, anybody ever take Spanish class, right? Remember how Spanish, like certain words were had like a, a feminine uh, version and a male version? Like a abuelo is your grandpa, grandpa, grandfather. And la is grandmother. Ends in an O, ends in an A, and that's how you knew. So if you're looking at your grandma and you say abuelo, she's gonna smack you with a broom, right? And so very similar to the original is in verse 16, going through the lineage of Jesus, it says, "In Jacob, the father father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Those simple words, of whom, that is the feminine version of that. And so Matthew is writing very specifically to say that Jesus was only born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, that Joseph was only the legal father of of Jesus. And I believe he was a good man because one, he obeyed the Lord and he was a father, even when a lot of others probably would have walked away from that situation. So she was born of a woman, and I think there's big theological understandings, but this was something that was even brought up the very beginning of our Bible. And then she was born of a virgin. We read about that this morning. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is absolutely being attacked by critical scholars today. Oh, this this word in the Hebrew only means maiden. Why would they want to attack that? Because anything that we can do to smear Jesus... That's what they're going to do. But we know again in Matthew 1, Joseph took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So they waited. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? I think if anybody knew the status, the status of her condition, it would be Mary. And think about what, so when we read later in the Gospels, and there's certain things that, and Mary treasured these in her heart, and she remembered, I think this would always stick with her. Because she knew, I had never been with a man. But I am great with child. Like there, a lot of faith in that. But also a lot of evidence in that. Mary would have known. And so the virgin birth is a very high point in our Christian faith. It was prophesied for us. And so, and then also that he'd be called Emmanuel. Isaiah seven fourteen again, says he shall be called Emmanuel. And again, Matthew tells us that. Call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, uh, again, critical scholars always want to attack and say, Jesus never made claims to be deity, or there's nothing in the New Testament that claims that Jesus was God. The very name at his birth that they're going to call him Emmanuel shows that Jesus is God. Another line of prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. We're doing more than eight, so we're doing more than a quintillionth possibility here, right? Born in Bethlehem. Uh, Anybody prophesy when you're going to be born, what town you were born in? Anybody have control over that? Do you look at God and say, Osage Beach, buddy, let's go. No, none of us said that. I wouldn't even have picked Missouri. We've talked about that. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem of Frathra, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth, for from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose going forth is from of old, from old, that's good, that's key, why, from ancient days, in Daniel 7. When uh, the term "son of man" is used, talking about this um, human that is that is going to rule on God's behalf, they reference God as the ancients of days. I think it's interesting, but we know this is where Jesus was born, Matthew two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so we know his place of birth, something that a mere human would have no control over, but God prophesied said that and then fulfilled it right and then we have that he's going to spend a season in egypt so when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11, 1, Matthew 2. He rose, took the child. Why? Because they knew that uh, Herod was going to do some crazy things. And his mother at night, and they departed to Egypt, and he remained there until Herod died. And and all through the New Testament, a lot of these, they're tagging the Old Testament to it to show this was to fulfill prophecy. They understood the significance of this. Like, do not miss this. And this is how we know that Jesus was the Messiah. And it seems funny, but we talk about this. If I ask you right now, hey, where are you from? Like, where was your childhood? You know, I lived a small portion in Florida, then I lived a couple of years in Arizona, and then mostly in Missouri. In Missouri, I mean, sorry. We talked about that. We, that. Those are normal conversations. For us, would not Jesus have had the same thing? Jesus tells us about your childhood. Well, yeah, we were actually in Egypt for a little bit. Born in Bethlehem. Then we moved to Egypt. I heard the housing prices were better. No. I mean, those have been normal things that we talk about. But it's also fulfilling prophecy. That he be called a Nazarene. So Isaiah 11 there shall come forth a shoots from the stump of Jesse, that's another part we'll read here in a second, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so Matthew two, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth. So born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt, and after Herod dies they come back and they live in Nazareth. Well why did Joseph pick that? We don't know. But it fulfills prophecy.
1: Because the word here branch
0: in the Hebrew is nazareth I always struggled with that because I was like, they always reference Isaiah 11:1, and it's like I don't see the word Nazareth whatsoever. And then you dig a little deeper, and you understand the Hebrew. So Nazareth in that language—oh, that's the city. Where'd you grow up? Oh, in Branch.
1: You know, doesn't that sound like some redneck? You know, back roads, like a little city, unincorporated.
0: But that's what it was for Jesus. And we know that he was, if you remember in uh, the beginning of the gospel of John, one of the disciples, I think Nathaniel said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Could anything good come out of branch? Like that small little city, like really? Like that's where the Messiah was born? Well, that's where it was prophesied that Nazareth would be that branch.
1: There was a massacre in his childbirth. So Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen
0: Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Then the Lord, then Herod, sorry, when he saw that he had been tricked by those wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children. That's the key thing there in Bethlehem and all that region. So if you have that little nativity set up in your house, and I hope you do, those are beautiful, frights, And you have the wise men right there at the birth of Jesus. Yeah, that's heresy. No, not bad heresy, but it says when the wise men came, they sought the child, not the baby. See, when Jesus was born, that's when the star appeared, and then they traveled. So Jesus was probably around two when the wise men showed up. And that's why it says, when they went to Egypt, take the child and go to Egypt. So the wise men weren't there at the birth of Jesus. It wasn't like he just popped out, and then here's some gold, frankincense, and some myrrh. Jesus was a child at that point. And that's why he killed all the male children that were two and under. That's why he just didn't kill the infants, because it had been, because he, he knew from the wise men when that star had appeared, it wasn't just, oh, last week, it was a couple of years at least. So there was a massacre at his birthplace. Don't you love that that's a prophecy about that? Like, oh, tell us about the Messiah. Oh, they're going to try to kill all the kids when he's born to try to stop. Why? Because again, Satan wants to do anything to stop Jesus. Why? Because the cross. In the empty grave. He's gonna come from the line of Abraham. Anybody get to choose the family that you were born into? Yeah, that's a conversation me and God are gonna have. Just help me understand. Just wanna know. Really? Really? But in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Clear back in Genesis 12:3. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And that's why the genealogies matter for a couple different reasons. One is fulfilling of this prophecy that he's going to be called a son of Abraham. Even Paul writes that from their race, according to the flesh, he's talking about they belong to the patriarchs, which Abraham would be one of those. And so we know that God made this unconditional covenant with Abraham. And he puts this line into, what does he mean that every family of the earth is going to be blessed because of me? And we are families of the earth and we are blessed. Why? Because the promise of God came through the line of Abraham. That he is still continuing to bless families because of the covenant that he made clear back uh, the birth of Abraham's 2166 B.C. 4,000 years ago. God is still blessing families on the earth because of the promise that he made to Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus. And so Abraham had some kids, but the promise goes through Isaac, not Ishmael. That's where our Muslim friends want to differ and disagree with us. No, the promise went through Ishmael. And that's how we separate and we fight with them now. Because the promise goes through Isaac. So that same promise that God gave to Abraham, now he reinstates with Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. So there's no end to it, meaning there's still families that are being blessed. And then obviously Luke tells us that it didn't go through Ishmael, that it is through Isaac. And very same, a descendant of Jacob. So Numbers 24 tells us, I see him, but not now. So It's going to be a far fulfillment. Behold him, but not near. So it's going to take a hot minute. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Meaning there's going to be a ruler of that. Obviously, Luke tells us the son of Jacob and Matthew tells us Jacob, the father of Judah, which is our another line. So we're following this line It's very specific, which sons of which father. And so from the tribe of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. He's not the firstborn. He's actually like the fourthborn. First couple, not too good. You could read about that. Third, they become Levi. He's the Levites. And so the next one up is Judah. Anybody remember who Judah's mom was? (laughs) The ugly one, Leah. That's what the Old Testament says. Don't get mad at me, okay? Said that she was weak eyed, and, you know, that's not the one that he wanted. He worked seven years. No, he wanted the other one, he wanted Rachel, but. It was Leah. And so not even the favorite of Jacob. Why? Because it's not about what Jacob wants. It's about what God is doing. And so from the tribe of Judah, that's where the lion of Judah comes from. And so again, very specific son of Judah. And even here in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Very specifically again, this is four four generations to make sure that we can follow that. Why? Because now we get to David. And so you have this Abrahamic covenant that Jesus is fulfilling. And then there's a Davidic covenant that God made with David. And talking about ruling on behalf of David. He says, I will raise up your offspring. There was a near fulfillment of that. He shall build a house for my name. But then he starts saying something a little bit different and I will establish his own kingdom forever, and your throne shall be established forever. So when Jesus reigns forever on earth, he's fulfilling the prophecy, the covenant that is given to David. And so obviously Luke and Romans tells us the city of David, which is Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life because he was of the house and the lineage of David concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh, Romans 1, 3. All of these prophecies matter. And this is just the birth of Jesus. We haven't got into his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, still so many in there. And these are more than eight. That this truly is, that Jesus truly is God. And it matters, I love this verse in 2 Timothy 2, 13. That if we are faithless, he remains faithful. You can read all through the Old Testament. And what you're going to see is the faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of God. And even today for us, the promises and the fulfilled promises matter to us. Why? Because even when we are faithless, God has remained faithful to his plan and his desire that he would offer salvation to us. So if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so there are times in our lives that we feel like God has left us or forsaken us or we get vague or we forget the promises of God upon us. And even in this Advent season, understanding this little manger to the cross, empty grave, waiting for his return. These are the promises of God that he has fulfilled for us in a very literal sense that our faith is based upon. And so when our emotions wanna get in the way and the things that we're going through and we feel sometimes we're uh, abandoning God or we're separated from God, hold fast to the promises of God, that he is who he says he is. He cannot deny himself that he is faithful. Even when we fail, even when we mess up, that the story of Advent is his grace and his love, because that is the reason that he sent his son. It's what we read. For God so loved the world that he fulfilled all of this, and he made it so specific. Why? Because I don't want you to miss my son, the importance of Jesus. I want to make it so specific that you can't be confused by it, that you can't be like, oh, there's three good options here. Let's go with door number one. No, no, no. Don't miss Jesus and so even this Advent season as you're sitting around your family and you got the tree and some presents understand the greatest gift don't miss Jesus this season and so wherever you're at with the Lord and I love that Cliff talked about the prodigal if you're a prodigal or if you're the other son run to the father Surrender your heart to him. Don't miss the love and the grace and the mercy of our Father who loves you. And he gave a son for you. That is what Christmas is about. God fulfilling his promise for us and to us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Because you are who you say you are, that you have kept your word, you are faithful. And I pray that we would respond in faithfulness to you. And when we don't, when we're distracted and we're sinking, we thank you for the love and the grace that you pull us up and you set us up on solid rock, which is your son, Christ. So Jesus, Abide in us as we sang. Continue to lead and guide us through your Holy Spirit. Give us faith, boldness, and courage to continue to be your hands and your feet. And even in this Christmas season, even in our lives, let us never miss who you are, but pour out your love. Keep lifting the veil from our hearts and our minds that we can see you and have this transforming word and glory in our lives. Give us that kind of faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen.